Past, Present, Future Live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future Live. I'm your host, RJB. This week's guest is Aaron Fraser. Aaron was the drummer and a vocalist for the soul group Duran Jones and the Indications, which formed at Indiana University while he was in college. And he just released his debut solo record, Introducing, which was produced by Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys. We talked about his time in Duran Jones and the Indications, his songwriting process, his very popular song, My God Has a Telephone, and his distinct falsetto. After the interview, you'll hear Aaron perform Have Mercy, Bad News, and Love Is. And as always, there's a Spotify playlist for this episode in the show notes. And if you like what you hear on this show, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Now here's my interview with Aaron Fraser. All right, I'm here with Aaron. Hey, Aaron, how you doing? I'm doing really well, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining. We have a lot to talk about. I know you have a bunch of new music that's come out recently, and I think you have more music coming out, so I want to touch on all that. But first, let me ask you if you can look all the way back and think of an earliest musical memory that you have. I guess dancing around the room to, like, Thriller uh, <laughs> that my mom had on the stereo. And another really early one where we were listening to Tapestry by uh, Carole King. Wow. Yeah, I have, a, I have a lot of thriller memories as well. Something about it, I guess, just opens up the, opens up the brain. Yeah. And you, you grew up in Baltimore? That's right. Yeah. Was your family musical? Was there a lot of music playing around the house? There, there was a lot of music playing around the house, but like nobody in my family uh, were musicians, really. But my parents, and especially like my, my dad, uh, was like a really great like music listener. You know, he he used to like he put on like Three Dog Night or the Doobie Brothers or or something like that, and then he'd like pause it and be like, "No, li- listen, like listen to the yeah. listen to that intro," and then would like restart it and we listen it uh, again. So, yeah, I think that was maybe uh, formative. I remember my dad making me listen to the specifically to the drums in Hotel California before it goes into the solo. Oh yeah, <laughs> I was like, so he'd play over and over. So. In your childhood, uh, I assume you were discovering music as you grew up a little bit. Was there a point where you thought that this could be a professional path for you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, after I realized I I didn't think a career as a baseball player, maybe around like eight years old, I think uh, I realized that might not be in the cards for me. Yeah, I I don't know. Drumming was from a pretty young age. I started when I was nine. It was just like my, my favorite thing to do. I was a decent student, but I wasn't like amazing but drumming was always a, a place where i could like focus you know and 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 i don't know yeah. fire on all cylinders how do your parents feel about you playing the drums all the time we definitely covered the drum set with a lot of pillows and blankets and and stuff like that so which i i wonder if that like shaped my preference for drum sounds i always gravitate towards the much more dead like james gadson sound rather than the like mm-hmm. big open like bernard purdy sound 
so in those days when you were learning and practicing, what were you practicing? Like, were you inspired by specific music when you were at that age? Or was it just like learning how to play? Yeah, you know, the, the first song, I think that really I was like, oh, man, I love these drums. And I, I like, it's kind of a goofy song, but uh, it's by Jewel. Uh, the song Standing Still. You know, and for some reason, like, I the pre-chorus has this really drum forward, like, and um, I used to like drum on the side of the car door whenever that would come on. And my mom was the one who was like, oh, like, I think she just saw there was some sort of intuitive connection happening and, and asked me if I wanted to learn how to play. That's really cool. That's cool when, when parents take advantage of that as opposed to being like, you know, that's a distraction. You should focus on sports or... Yeah, or like stop drumming on my car door. Yeah, stop. <laughs> Definitely stop making loud noises is something most parents deal with. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's cool. So I know that you went to um, University of Indiana, right? That's right, yeah. Cool. I'm from Ohio, so I uh, I went to Ohio State, but I've been to Bloomington. It's a good school, and it feels to me like a place you go if you want to be creative. What drew you to that school? It's a beautiful city, and I, I do think that towns like that in the Midwest can often become like a sort of rallying point, a meeting point, like an oasis uh, in the state where like weirdos and creative people just kind of can, mm -hmm. can go mm -hmm. and be together. Indiana has a great music school and specifically has like a great audio engineering program. So, so that's, that's why I went to, to study. And what did you think when you got there, when you were heading to college, if, if you had an idea, like what did you think you were going to do? To be honest, at, at that point, I wasn't really sure. I knew I loved drumming. Uh, at that point, I was I, I was really, really obsessed with, like, hip-hop. Um, so I, I thought I wanted to be around hip-hop, either, like, making the instrumentals or, I don't know, being in the studio in, in some capacity. I really just wanted to, like, play in the roots, basically, at, at that time. <laughs> I, I'd heard, do you want more <laughs> nice. in high school? And, and that was sort of, I was like, oh, okay, that's everything I love. That sounds like a good direction. Had you spent any time producing anything yourself up to that point? Yeah, I did. I made like I made beats. I made hip hop instrumentals uh, in high school and into early college. I recently I found like these handwritten flyers in this notebook that I I was posting around Bloomington, like uh, with my MySpace, you know, looking for MCs or DJs or anyone who wanted to like make hip hop music. And and I know that you met your future bandmates in college. Yeah, the first couple bands I, I was playing in, I played in uh, in a few like simultaneously. Uh, the first couple were all like classmates of mine, like from the audio engineering program. So that was really fun because everybody w was such tasteful musicians because I think they're approaching it from like an audio perspective and understand that so much of like you can have all the fanciest plugins in the world but like there's a, a certain amount that just needs to come from the performance from like the acoustic event that happens into the microphone i know that everyone came kind of from a little bit different different places different musical backgrounds and and you guys ended up forming duran jones and the indications but what did everyone bring to the table from the beginning that that felt like it could last I don't know. We we all sort of filled filled these roles. You know, Blake, uh, our guitar player, um, and and my co-producer with the indications. He he loved the strange. You know, the stranger the better. The weirder the synth record. You know, from nineteen seventy one, like the better. 
he never wanted to be the one to like take the solo. You know, he he was a rhythm guy like through and through, and I think that's that's so important. And I think that extends to like what he brings to the table as like a collaborator. You know, he's he's mm-hmm. always down to like just kind of be the supporting role. Um, our original bass player Kyle, uh, he's definitely the most like virtuosic of us. But in the same way, it's sort of like apply that you apply that virtuosity to bass, mix it with like taste, and you get that sort of Jamersonian style that's very busy, but always in the cut, uh, which is really hard to do. I mean, and, and Durand was like I, he was our he was our fearless front person who mm-hmm. he just brought so much like warmth and spirit and uh, and also. Uh, his own level of sophistication that none of us had because he was studying classical saxophone at Indiana. So, you know, that's a whole other world um, to, to kind of <laughs> add to the mix. I mean, it's a, such an interesting sound that uh, the band had and has. I guess a lot of your music, and, and this goes for your solo stuff as well, there's a lot of, I don't want to say nostalgia, but there's like a, there's some early... There's some soul and R&B and Motown feel to it, but it also feels fresh, and that's a cool combo. Um, is that what you guys intended from the beginning? I think at the beginning, we there was not a ton of, like, this is exactly what we wanted to do. We were just getting together on Sundays, like, in my basement uh, and working on songs. Well, we would get together on Sundays. We'd put we just bring a bunch of 45s and we would just sit around and listen to them. And in the same way that like, you know, my dad would pause the record and be like, listen to that. We would be like, ah, listen to those drums. Like, listen to that intro. Listen to like how out of tune that bass is, but it's amazing. There's just something about the wonkiness of it. And then we just go downstairs and, and try to write tunes uh, when we were feeling inspired. I think maybe at the beginning we did want to like make like, a record that you couldn't tell when it was made or even a record that could like fool a collector into thinking it's like from the 60s or something but I heard a guy once his name's Dave Lennard he's a piano player he went to Indiana lives in New York City now he once said like when you're first finding your sound you impersonate and then you obviously fall short because no one can do that person but it's kind of where you fall short that you like find your own self and your own sound so you're saying that's kind of where you guys ended up? Yeah, because m- multiple of us found soul music through hip hop, found it through like loving that that sort of 93 to like 2001 sound uh, and then going and looking for the samples ourselves when we were in like Goodwill or you know wherever we're looking in the dollar bin. And that's how we found it. So sort of like the the tree bears fruit and then the fruit falls off the tree and sprouts another tree. I've talked to a lot of artists actually who discovered 70s funk and maybe earlier R&B through hip hop. There's such a big influence of soul and Motown and R&B, especially on the sample side of hip hop, right? Yeah. And then when you kind of hear it in the context of a song, when you hear the source sample for the world is yours by Nas. When you hear that in the in Ahmad Jamal's you know track, like five minutes in, it's not even like the first eight bars. It's like really in there. It feels, I don't know, like you're receiving a secret message from the universe. It's it's super exciting. It's so interesting to me because like some of the early famous versions of that, like when the levee breaks, you know, and the Beastie Boys, like there there were these kind of more overt 
uses of samples and it, it does seem like it's almost like a competition in a way, I guess, to find cool stuff that's not <laughs> that's more buried in, in other music. Have you pushed yourself to like find more obscure good stuff to use um, over the years? Is that like, do you see it as, as like a <laughs> kind of competition to find more cool stuff to be able to use? I think it, it sort of went in like, a, I don't know, the pendulum swings and, and swings back, I, I guess. I love rare, you know, ob- obscure records. And I also think part of the change in sampling is like a function of just legal battles that have been won and and lost over the years. Like you think about like the Gilbert O'Sullivan uh, alone again case against Biz Marquis and and his label and, you know, Biz lost, lost that. I think that sort of marked the end of like the Beastie Boys 30 samples in one song and they're all like top 40, you know, records uh, thrown in. So I think probably for a lot of people, it's, it's part necessity. I don't know. I love obscure music, but lately I've just been really enjoying, I don't know, get wrapping my brain around all the craft that goes into making pop records or uh, just appreciating like not just the 145 that this band in Dayton like got an hour in the studio and they blasted out this 145. I love that and I could talk about that all day. But I also think that there's some beauty in like consistency and in like building a larger body of work over time and in changing with the times like Smokey Robinson over the years even not all of Smokey Robinson's catalog is like mind-blowing some of it is like hilarious like it's kind of funny you know and or Curtis Mayfield over the decades, uh, even you know into the '90s, or Gil Scott Heron, like mm-hmm. uh, with his Jamie XX collaboration, like it's so beautiful to me that people can just continue to put out quality, and even when they fall short, they're trying. And an evolution, right? I mean, most artists I know, at least, are like consistently pushing forward, and I think that's a tension that can exist with music fans and and the artists they like because people want the artists to sound like they know them to sound and as artists you know you're constantly kind of pushing forward and it seems like you're you're pushing forward as well into your into your solo work and do you view the stuff that you guys have made over the past you know few years as like do you feel like you need to kind of push beyond that not in a negative way but just in an evolutionary way yeah and and not even in um not in a way where we feel the the pressure to like keep upping the ante or being like it, it's just in a way of learning to express and like sort of synthesize like all different parts of ourselves you know i'm i'm such an eclectic listener and so many other people are too it's very it is i definitely know people who are just like oldies for life you know if it's not low and slow with the gadsden 16th notes they're just like they don't want it and and that's that's cool too you know you listen to whatever makes you happy but for me i i love i love soul music i love hip-hop i love you know 90s r&b i I love like cowboy country i love like gospel and folk and 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 all kinds of things so yeah i just want to celebrate all that in in my music So in your solo album called Introducing, I'm just curious, what was the kind of impetus to create a solo record and what kind of outlet did you feel like that would give you um, in contrast to all the work you've done with Duran Jones and the Indications? 
Yeah, well, I got a call while I was like making dinner. I was like frying some plantains and I got a call from uh from like an Akron number and uh yeah, I was like, "Hey, this is Dan Auerbach, you know. I I heard your music and I I'm a I'm a fan and I love the falsetto." Like he said, "Let's do a record. What the fuck?" you know. And <laughs> And, and, and was that based on the Duran Jones? I mean, was that based on the indications or was that based on the single you had put out? I think it was both. Yeah, I put out a single in, in I, th- I guess, maybe late 2017, uh, a gospel 45 under the name The Flying Stars of Brooklyn. Which has like millions and millions and millions of listens on Spotify. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you how, what, why you think that happened and how that like took on a life of its own. But we can maybe go back to that after you, because I want to hear the story about the sure, <laughs> getting a sure. call from Dan Harbaugh. Yeah, that, yeah, the Flying Stars thing is hilarious and amazing. Um, yeah, so he, he called me while I was making dinner and, and said, let's make a record. And it felt at the same time like surreal because he's somebody who who I I genuinely have been a fan of like since I was in high school like when I first tried singing I don't I have a very early memory of like drumming while singing Seven Nation Army which if you're gonna drum and sing for anybody out there who wants to learn how to drum and sing that's probably a good one to start with but I, I really didn't try singing much until I got my driver's license and I could like have privacy because it's just not something I really had a lot of growing up so having like a sort of moving box where nobody could ever hear me um was a place where i could like experiment with my voice and a lot of what i was singing early on was black keys stuff was like brothers uh and then like the early stuff thick freakness and the chulahoma stuff that's awesome and wait so so what happened next i mean were you like okay let's do it and then did you just start working on it immediately what's that process like yeah i mean i had had i had some things that were in the works that didn't seem right for the indications. I had some scraps and like I'm sure lots of people out there, just like hundreds of voice memos of me like humming on the street, like not trying to, you know, look like a like a crazy person. And then a lot of it just came together from scratch when we got in the studio. Uh, we wrote the whole record over the course of four days last November. And I think that's how Dan likes to do it sometimes is just like, give yourself a little bit of time pressure in order to access the intuitive side of your writing. I think that actually working with Dan was a really cool fit because like he, I think he really understands what it's like probably more than most musicians out there, like what it's like to be known for one thing, but have so much more to like your musical identity with the black keys. It's just like, it's, it's riff rock. It's, it's down and dirty or it's, big and sing along but he in talking to him when we first after that first conversation for a couple weeks we communicated almost like in nothing but like songs just like song 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 Mm. song because music has that ability to kind of be in conversation with itself I, i we just sort of quickly realized that we loved a lot of the same records and a bunch of them are like those obscure 45s like this one called let jesus work it out by the Daytonians. Okay. It's just like the sickest. It, it, it's basically like a gospel take on um, Let's Straighten It Out, the okay. Overwrite Lattimore. But it has some of the craziest drum fills. And by crazy, I don't mean uh, acrobatic, just like wonky and, and super raw. So stuff like that uh, told me that this was going to be the right connection on like a, I don't know, like a spiritual level. 
So back to that phone call, because Dan is sort of like, if you get to work with him, that's a huge step in the right direction for a musician. Were you like, I can't believe this is happening? Or was it more, did you take it more in stride and go for it? It's a weird mix because, you know, again, so on one hand, I'm I'm a genuinely big fan. On the other hand, we had so many, I knew we had so many sort of mutual points of like convergence in some of our musical journeys. Obviously, I'm not playing arenas, but like when I was in high school, I, I like fell in love with acoustic blues. And then from there, I found Junior Kimbrough and R.L. Burnside, who, mm-hmm. who were like points of genesis for for the black keys and i loved hip-hop and he did the black rock project in college i did like archival field recordings in north mississippi hill country and he spent time in in clarksdale one of the talents that i spent a lot of time in and then even like with the soul connection it's like he covered jerry butler you know philly soul legend he did the arcs you know with leon michaels and uh, Homer Steinwise, so even closer to kind of the world I was traveling in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like even the artist that did the artwork for the arcs, El Ohms, Omar, I had linked up with him just through making music that found a home in like the lowrider and like Chicano soul community. So yeah, so on one hand, I, I, I'd also like met his dad. He came to like one of my shows a few years back. So on one hand, it's like, whoa, this is weird. And on the other hand, it's like, okay, we're here. It's like happening. Kind of makes sense. Yeah. yeah. What was that recording like, just doing that kind of immersive writing and recording? Could you just tell us a little bit about that experience? I definitely am somebody who has like written on both sides of the spectrum. Probably the song that most people know me for is one called Is It Any Wonder? And I wrote that in like two hours. It's just very simple. It was just came came from the gut. But so many of the artists that I love... I mean, especially people like Curtis Mayfield, people like Carol King or Smokey. It's like, you know, when they're writing lyrics, like add a little sugar, honeysuckle lamb, you know, great big expression of happiness. You're just like, whoa, like it's, it's, po- <laughs> it is really poetry, you know, mm-hmm, you could mm-hmm. put that, put that on a page and, and it would hold up. Um, so it was scary to be like okay it all has to come from this intuitive place and so it's like trying to trying to hold on to a i don't know steady a plane that's like kind of going way too fast or or a car or something to try to thread the needle between like what feels good and right in the moment and what sort of like has the rhetorical flourish of like goffin and king or or yeah or smoky or something and, and up to this point, you had been working with a band. So did you feel alone in terms of like, this is my job now to, to come up with all this? Or, or was that was that something you were already used to? I mean, I, I've, I've done a decent amount of like solo writing for the indications. Um, so it, it wasn't it wasn't the f- first time. However, like even writing with the indications, it's like I've known those dudes now for, for a really long time for uh, some of them for like. 10 years and you definitely form this brain trust and like uh shorthand and, and you kind of know what each other likes and, and you can write for it it is a little scary doing it by yourself and realizing it's sort of how much you depend on and count on having that trust that sort of feedback from people but again i, I think dan the fact that we shared so many musical loves made it easier to like put that trust there
Can you just tell us quickly about the My God Has a Telephone single? Uh, we met, we referenced that earlier, but the song has over 20 million streams on Spotify, and that just seemed like, that seemed notable. Yeah, I love gospel. I'm Jewish. I, I grew up in Baltimore in like a, a very Jewish community, but there's something about gospel that ha- has really like always spoken to me. And I think the themes, whether whether or not you like you're like, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Like, I think they're, the themes that they're talking about, you could swap it in, you know, swap that in for, for whatever gives you strength, whatever gives you joy and light, whatever you find grounding in. I, I have some friends in a folk band called Spirit Family Reunion, and they describe that concept as open door gospel. Um, hmm. And that's what I tried to do on... Uh, the Flying Stars 45 was was write a gospel song that it didn't feel so specific that it excluded anybody. And I did it in my living room over the course of a weekend. And so for it to get streamed 20 million times, it makes me really, really happy and also like makes me laugh whenever I think about it. <laughs> That's really cool. I mean, it's it's got to be a gratifying feeling, though, to just put a single out there like to be you know just to express yourself in a, in a way and and have people respond in that way yeah it is it's really wild and i i do think over the years the imposter syndrome that like i know so many people feel like for me definitely like dissipated not from like the number of streams because i i don't i don't think it, it does feel good and does feel gratifying but I put more stock in the like getting messages from people being like, mm-hmm. Hey, I was in like a really dark place in my life and like this helped me get through or getting tagged in like a, you know, a video of somebody's like first wedding dance or, or their new baby, like dancing, dancing to the song or, or something. That's where I was like, you know what? Like this music really is doing good for, for people. And, and that's an amazing feeling. Well, we need to talk about your voice because your your falsetto singing is notable and more notable now that you have your solo album out and you're bringing that more to the forefront. And it, to me, it's I'm not a singer. It seems incredibly hard to do that for long periods of time, but I don't know. How does it work and how did you kind of come to that expression? I figured out that I could sing falsetto on the first Duran Jones and the Indications record. Um, that song, Is It Any Wonder, is the only song I sing on that record. And it's actually like what you're hearing is the first time I ever tried to sing falsetto. Like that's really just what, what went on the record. I had been challenging myself, like rather than like, I don't know, going out on Friday nights. I just thought like I would try to take a couple Fridays in a row and stay in and work on songs and like different styles. Yeah, so I wrote a soul song. It's just really simple bass line. And I tried to sing it in my chest voice. And I listened back to it and I was just like, this is not very good. But <laughs> I know Duran could do it justice because he's an amazing singer. He could, He's really like a sing the phone book type dude. So I brought it to my bandmate Blake and we recut the demo. And then I was just adding in like a guide vocal and truth be told I was like a little stoned and um was like on the couch and uh just very relaxed and um all I could really do in that moment was like sing very softly and that's that's what <laughs> that's the vocal that came out that's the vocal that's that's on the record and prior to that when I I had been singing the original four indications had a rock and roll band and I had been singing in my chest voice but hearing that stuff 
back. It's, it's just, I don't know. It gave me the nails on the chalkboard cognitive dissonance of hearing my own voice. It just didn't, it didn't feel right. But as soon as I heard the falsetto, I, it was like the first time I felt like that's what I was supposed to sound like. That's what my voice like, mm. wanted to do. And I wonder, you know, partially if it's because there's enough of a remove between my speaking voice and my singing voice that my brain, I don't know, maybe processes it as like a separate entity rather than being like, oh, but that's not what I sound like. I wanted to ask about the the videos you've been creating for the singles for the album. It seems like you're having fun doing those videos. I'm just curious, like how you approach creating videos for for singles because it feels like videos like went out of style for a long time and now they're like completely essential again. I appreciate you saying that because I still feel like I'm trying to like find my voice visually. I have so much respect for the artists out there. Um, I don't know, like Moses Sumney, for example, who extend their like artistic vision. It's so crystal clear all the way out to, to the visuals. For me, I have been trying to like have fun with them. The music on the record, a lot of it is is joyful. So I did want to bring some playfulness to it. With a song like Bad News, I, I did want to bring some some like solemnity, I guess, to it. Yeah, I don't know. Music videos are hard. I'll leave it at that, I guess. <laughs> well, I think they're they're interesting. Who's the woman who is in the Bad News video with you? Uh, yeah, her name is Nicole Johnson. She is, uh, she's a friend of the director's. Uh, the director is a, is a friend of mine, and I didn't really have much of a budget to do the video. And I also, yeah. especially being that it's COVID times, it, it just, I didn't have a lot of time to to do it uh, and a yeah. lot of places to do it. But the song itself did conjure up an image. I just felt like somebody walking, like tracking shot, like either walking or skating or or something. And uh, so when I expressed that to the director, Julia Barrett-Mitchell, she was like, I know the perfect person. And it, it really did feel like, I'm, I'm very happy with that video. It felt like it, it captured the spirit of it. Yeah, well, keep it up, man. I mean, it's it's cool and, and it is essential, you know. You, you have to put these out there because you don't know how people are consuming media these days. That's true. And I don't know when I'm going to hit the road again, so... Yeah, true. Good point. Um, putting out this album, what do you want the listener to take from this album? Or what are you intending to communicate through it? I want to communicate that I don't feel the pressure to be defined by a single label, by a single genre in music or, or in the rest of my life. And I hope that people kind of find that in themselves too. Be like, yeah, I, I am a lot of things. I love a lot of different things and I can celebrate the full dimensions of, of myself and of what I find joy in. Y- yeah, you, there's no such thing as like a guilty pleasure when it comes to music. Nice. I like that message. It's so fascinating to me, and I've talked to a couple other artists about this, how every artist I've ever talked to is really... Uh, doesn't like genres, you know what I mean? <laughs> Which makes sense because people don't want to be put into a category. But all of our listening, I guess part of it's technology, but also the music industry puts you into 
categories and wants to put you into categories. I'm just curious if you have thoughts on that kind of the tension between those those two things. It seems like mo- all artists don't want to be put into genres, but then on the kind of uh, maybe sales and marketing side, everyone is put into genres. Like, what's that tension like for you? There is definitely a push pull. I also think it is like a deeply human thing to want to like put things in boxes and like recognize patterns and taxonomize, you know, but um, there, there's definitely something helpful about putting out a record like our, the first Duran Jones and the indications record. And even like the name Duran Jones and the indications, like we went back and forth between like, should it just be the indications? Should it be Duran Jones and the indications? And, you know, it's like, even though there are multiple singers in the group, there is something helpful about a name like that. It conjures up an image uh it helps a listener or somebody who's flipping through records or you know scanning through spotify like to give a a a quick indicator no pun intended of of like what it is with that being said yeah i i love i love when people are forced to like i think like a little more like when i announced the 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 solo record billboard was like very generous to to do like a a write-up on the album and they they like tagged it under uh under rock and i was like aha i got (laughs) him i think music's also becoming more mixed than than it was you know 20 years ago for sure yeah, I, I think definitely like with the internet and being able to access all these different like subcultures. I, I also think, you know, and and this doesn't this doesn't apply to, to me as much, but especially like black creators out there, like for t- way too long, just been defined by like oh they're they're black and they have a good voice. It's like it's R and B or or it's soul, but like so many amazing creators right now, like artists of color, are, are incorporating like all of these different sounds and and so I'm excited for for some of those walls to to come down and for those artists to to be seen in in their entire dimension as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I just interviewed um Cautious Clay this week and he has a, an album coming out and I I had this same conversation with him about genres and it's like, you know, he draws from lots of different genres but again, kind of being put into different boxes. It's just it's interesting how that works because I like as a music fan, I'd like to just click on Spotify and just have them tell me good music, not like <laughs> hear your jazz, new jazz albums and new rock album. But right. anyway, I don't know if we can solve that today. Although I will, the one caveat I will say, um, maybe in defense of genres is when I'm in a record store and I have like an hour between sound, like setup and sound check and I'm on tour, it is very helpful to run in there and be like, okay, here's the disco box of 45s. Here's like, this, <laughs> here's the soul box. Here's, you know. The, yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff is is, is like helpful. You said putting them into boxes actually <laughs> is helpful. <laughs> I'm, I'm guilty of it, but yeah. We we haven't talked that much about your drumming. Uh, you, you mentioned a couple drummers, but but who are your drumming heroes? Who whose sound have you been obsessed with? Are there people who you think of when you're playing mm-hmm. that sort of thing? The short answer is is Meg White, Questlove, and Levon Helm. Kind of in that order of of discovery for me. I think Meg White is so like she just she is so amazing. She paints in like primary colors, and it's just like. 
it's just so foundational and strong. So if you listen to some of like the rock and roll records that, that I was a part of, like the band before the indications became the indications, I was called Charlie Patton's War because at the time uh, we were very into pun band names. We were almost Lebronosaurus <laughs> Rex. Um, <laughs> but went with Charlie Patton's War. Uh, so if you listen to like that record, there's a lot of Meg White influence on there. But yeah, like... Questlove for, for me, for The Roots. And then when I moved out to Indiana uh, and sort of connected with folk music, it was Levon Helm. I love James Gadson. But also for me, like, it wasn't drummers as much as records. Like, I used to put on Illmatic. I used to put on Reasonable Doubt. And I would just play them front to back in the basement until I, like, knew every break on there. And so... Mm-hmm. In a way, it's like, you know, I can talk about drummers. When I'm talking about my favorite drummers, I have to, like, include, like, Pete Rock. And I have to include Large Professor and DJ Premier uh, and, and, and Dilla, of course. I know that you kind of discovered your first kind of musical dream was, was being in a hip-hop group. And, you know, that's kind of was your first dream. Looking back on your, I don't know, 15-year-old self, um, is where you are now similar to where you imagined you would be musically? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it kind of is, which is which is interesting. Um, I I kind of took a roundabout way to get there, but I think I'm I'm kind of like back in the in like a hip hop adjacent place, and that's that's kind of beautiful. Yeah, it is. What, I know that you've used your platform on kind of uh, raising awareness of, of causes. And I've talked to uh, a couple other artists about this. I'm just curious what you see your role as, as a, as an artist with the platform. I know that you've, you've drawn attention to mass incarceration, homelessness. Um, there's some black lives matter references in, in, in the video we were talking about earlier. Like, what do you see the relationship between you, your artists and the platform you have and, and these issues? I guess, I, you know, I, I draw a distinction between like, you know, my platform and like what I think is like the role of all artists. Like I, I'm not somebody who's, who thinks like every artist has to speak out. I I think that there's so much room and so much uh, necessity for like just pure escapism. Like people deserve a glimpse or a chance to access like a different reality, whether it's just a better version of it or like a completely fantasy reality. So I, I think that's okay. But for me, I've, just tried to follow the precedent set by a lot of my heroes. I mean, I, you know, I've talked about like Curtis Mayfield and and Gil Scott Heron, but you know, obviously like Bob Dylan too, and they found room within themselves and in their music to be tender and soft and to be full of political fury and to party and to grieve and be sad and be like we're we're all those things like nobody who like I don't feel like I could like describe myself as like an activist because that feels like a disservice to so many people who do so much more than than I do. <laughs> but th- those people who who are out there, it's like they can't be. There's activist burnout. Like they can't be fired up and kind of in in fight or flight mode all the time. They they need to to be able to to be soft too. Everybody does. So I feel a responsibility to kind of speak out on on those things, but also make room on my records for like the fun shit. Do you think about your fan base and whether you're going to potentially alienate people if you do take a stand on issues? No matter what you do, there's going to be somebody out there that doesn't like it or wants you to do something different. Like every time 
we post anything for like Duran Jones and the indications, you know, soul music, original soul music, you know, made today. We'll get comments. I really try not to read the comments, but I, but I, uh, <laughs> but I do sometimes. Best practice, not read the comments. Yeah. But, you know, we'll get comments like, oh, it would be so cool if you covered like Thin Line Between Love and Hate or if you covered a Rafi Pagan song or you covered this, cover that. So a couple of weeks ago, we posted a video of us um, doing uh, Ooh Baby Baby, Smokey Robinson. Mm-hmm. Straight mm-hmm. down the line, people have been asking me to cover it f- for years. Given, you know, given people, those people exactly what they want. <laughs> like, the first comment was like, this is cool, but I really love your original stuff. And it's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, you know, there's always going to be somebody. So I, and I, I do think that because f- from even the start of the indications career of releasing music, we've spoken out about those things. The fan base that we've developed, I think, ha- has come to expect that. So, last question. I know you have this album out, which of course we'll link to, and and you're gonna everyone's gonna hear some music from Aaron after the interview. But now that this is out there, I know that with Duran Jones, uh, you, you guys just put out a new single just curious what's on the horizon um in terms of music like what do you what do you want to do next is there anything you're excited about doing that you haven't been able to do yet you have a long career ahead of you so what's uh (laughs) what's next (laughs) well thank you for saying that any time in my life whether it's some sort of musical experience or like moving to a new city pushing myself out of my comfort zone kind of uprooting myself uh and and then replanting in like new soil it it's helped me grow so much and with every record i do i learn lessons that i apply to the next one what's next i think is to apply the same kind of gleeful sense of freedom i i tried to express on my solo record I, i i want to bring that to the indications and i think my bandmates are are totally on the same page we all love lots of different kinds of music and again like our heroes are people who have tried things they're not just cosplaying 1968 over and over again and in the same way, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna do that. And I'm really really excited for people to hear the next Duran Jones and the Indications record because um, I think that we are growing and evolving and pushing ourselves uh, as a band. And I'm having a great time with it. So I think other people will feel that. That's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that, and thank you for joining us because this was uh, this was a lot of fun. And people are gonna hear some music from Aaron in a few minutes. Thanks a lot for joining. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for having me. This is fun. And now here's Aaron performing Have Mercy, Bad News, and Love Is. But I knew enough 
And I just want to praise you, darling, for giving your love to me and so much more. You see me fall, the one that I am when the others are blind. If you leave me, believe me, I still wouldn't treat you Can barely 
song I'm going to do for you tonight is a song called Love Is. All three of these songs are on my debut solo record. Uh, it's called Introducing. My name is Aaron Fraser. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this performance tonight. And thank you to Past, Present, Future Pod for having me. Yeah. 
Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love.